The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online. Plus, we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we choose some of our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them out loud. I'm Patrick Gibbons, and on the podcast this week... Reporting from Riga, Lucas Degutis interviews citizens affected by Latvia's policy of expelling Russian speakers. Yesenda Maxstone Graham argues that applause has no place at funerals. Paying homage to the British composer Christopher Gunning, who died last year... Richard Bratby argues that composers of ads, film soundtracks and TV theme tunes should be taken more seriously. And, in light of the revelation that Secret Service agents were bitten 24 separate times in less than a year, Toby Young questions the Biden's choice of dog. Up first, Lucas Tegutis. At the age of 74, Inasa Novikova, who is ethnically Russian, was told she had to learn Latvian or she'd be deported. I felt physically ill when the policy was announced, she tells me, when we meet in an office close to Riga city centre. I've lived here peacefully for 20 years. There was no requirement for her to seek Latvian citizenship after the Cold War ended. Then, it was acknowledged that ethnic Russians, who make up a quarter of Latvia's 1.8 million population, would coexist with ethnic Latvians. But when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, this arrangement ended. If Latvia's non-citizens had Russian citizenship, as Inessa did, they now had to apply for a new EU residence permit, which meant learning Latvian. The new rules, which were introduced in the autumn of 2022, apply to everyone aged over 14 and under 75. In 2010, when she was 60, Inessa had applied for Russian citizenship. It only required a trip to the embassy and there were no examinations, so it was more appealing than naturalisation. Like 25,000 other ethnic Russians, she hadn't anticipated her citizenship would one day pose problems for her life in Latvia. It was humiliating living as a non-citizen, she says. She passed the language test last year at a cost of 500 euros. How did she afford it on her pension of 400 euros a month? The Almighty helped, I guess, she says. It was unbelievably difficult. Aliona Egorova, 69, was not so lucky. She was born in Latvia, but took Russian citizenship the same year as Inessa, tempted by the fact she would receive her pension eight years earlier if she did so. When the new rules were announced, she submitted her old Latvian language proficiency certificate, which was issued in 1993. It was rejected. She sat her exams and failed twice. The Latvian government only allows two attempts. In November, she was instructed to leave the country by the end of the month. Confused and frustrated, she wrote to President Edgar Srinkiewicz. His office informed her that the President's activities do not include interference in the process of granting residence permits, and if she disagreed with decisions made by the Migration Office, she was welcome to appeal. So she did. The response was unequivocal. There is no subjective factor in the assessment of literacy and the assessment cannot be adjusted. She showed me her letters. She'd been contacted by three different migration centres, none seemingly in communication with the others. One of the centres had called on the day we met to offer a year's residence for 300 euros. I don't have that. I've sold all of my gold, she says. 
She struggles to make ends meet after spending more than 1,000 euros to cover tests, fees, and letter correspondences. Her situation is not helped by the fact her bank account was recently blocked. I ask her what awaits her next. I'll stay in Latvia. This is my homeland. I was born here. My children are Latvian. I've worked my whole life. I've paid my taxes. I raise the prospect of her being arrested and deported. Let them try, she replies. Derussification, which can take the form of restoring citizenship laws, switching official languages or renaming streets, is common practice in former Soviet states. Since Putin's invasion of Ukraine, Latvia has taken things further, banning Russian state television, asking schools to teach only in Latvian, and toppling remaining Soviet monuments. Day-to-day life has been made tougher for ethnic Russians, and now the immigration law amendment has made staying in Latvia illegal for some. Around 16,000 Russian citizens applied for the new permit, and Aliona is one of about 1,000 who failed to meet requirements. No one has yet been deported, but the Interior Ministry insists that forced departure orders will be issued. Latvia's ruling political alliance, New Unity, defends its policies as part of a strengthening of national security. Ethnic Russians had years to learn the language, the Defence Committee chairman, Einar Zlatkovskis, tells me. This is a matter of attitude, not of your age or your education. Shortly before President Rinkevichus took office last summer, I asked him about social cohesion, and he replied that ethnic Russians are, quote, struggling with their identities. He finds it a bit strange that some never learnt Latvian. There was a final hope that the Constitution Court would challenge the government, but last month it backed the amendment, agreeing that the Ukraine war had created a security risk that justified the new law. The court said that any restrictions on the rights of Russian citizens were consequences of protecting the Latvian language, which is an integral part of the democratic state. When it was pointed out that most ethnic Russians who don't speak Latvian are retired women, the court argued that nationality, quote, indicates a person's loyalty to the state and confers on every citizen, irrespective of age or sex. It can't be assumed that having Russian citizenship and limited proficiency in Latvian means you support the barbaric dictator in Moscow, or pose any threat to national security. But since Putin's invasion of Ukraine, such assumptions have become a basis for policymaking, irrespective of the fact that many ethnic Russians are descendants of migrants from Soviet or even Tsarist times, and that until now there has been little incentive to learn Latvian. Language isn't the only hurdle facing some of those applying for the new permit. Political beliefs, and whether they are deemed correct, are another. President Rinkavichus was keen to share one of the few polls that compared ethnic attitudes towards the war. He pointed to a stark difference. Asked in 2022 which side they supported, 83% of Latvian speakers supported Ukraine, compared with only 25% of Russian speakers. That might appear worrying until you read that of the Russian-speaking respondents who didn't support Ukraine, most answered hard to say or neither, leaving only 17% supporting Putin. Maybe there's no willingness to answer this question because it's too sensitive, Rinkavichus tells me. There is a very complex and difficult soul-searching in that community. That is probably true, but the political uncertainty isn't exclusive to ethnic Russians. Recent surveys show that support for Ukraine is slowly declining across Europe. 46% of French and 52% of Italians are now either unsure or do not care about the outcome of the war. Nevertheless, along with language test results, Latvia's Russian citizens were required to submit paperwork detailing their work experience, property assets, travel documents, bank statements, 
and their political views. Under an additional questions category, they were given the option of yes or no responses to questions such as, do you believe that Russia annexed Crimea in 2014? Do you consider Russia's invasion of Ukraine a criminal act? Have you provided any support to Ukraine or its citizens? Is the dismantling of Soviet memorials in Latvia justified? This questionnaire was created by the State Security Service and having no political stance is deemed unacceptable, says Elizabeth Krivchova, an immigration lawyer who has helped applicants by creating instructional online videos. Russian applicants who express the wrong opinions or who refuse to answer altogether are asked to explain their views in person. So, to avoid any trouble, many just answer as the state expects them to. I've tried criticising the state's methods, but there is no parliamentary or judicial control over the intelligence services, Krivchova explains. The irony is that, historically, most Latvians are well aware of the evils of illiberalism. In Riga's various museums, visitors are constantly reminded of the long struggle the country went through to gain its freedom. The War Museum, for example, describes Nazi Germany's defeat as a, quote, strange victory, while Londoners dance in Trafalgar Square and confetti fell in Times Square. Latvia descended into decades of Soviet occupation. A new exhibition looks at the Latvians in exile, those who put faith in other countries across Western Europe, North and South America and Australia, to preserve their culture while it was repressed under communist rule. Yet Latvia today has concluded that de-Russification is a necessity to shield its young nation from foreign influence at the expense of people who are increasingly viewed as the enemy within. Just before I left the War Museum, I came across a whiteboard inviting visitors to describe what freedom means to them. One note reads, there will never be a Russian here. That was Lucas de Guttis. Next, Yesenda Maxstone Graham. The happy clappies evangelical Christians who clap along to worship songs during church services, has been around since the 1980s. The slightly derogatory term was coined in 1985, and the practice is still going strong. You can hear it as you walk past any evangelical church on a Sunday morning. But in the past couple of years, a new phenomenon has appeared, the sad clappies. These are the congregations who erupt into prolonged applause at funerals and memorial services. It's rare to go to a funeral or memorial service these days where clapping doesn't happen, it usually starts after the first of the often rather too many tributes. The speaker, son, daughter, grandson, old school friend, business associate, steps down from the lectern, and where there used to be silence, which allowed their words to hang in the air, applause breaks out. The applause gates are opened. Clapping will now happen at the end of every subsequent tribute. And when the great-grandchild gets up to read out a passage from Winnie the Pooh, he or she will be swamped with applause too. Some see this as an excellent innovation, striking a much-needed note of celebration, as one funeral-goer I spoke to put it. The applause is partly for the speaker's words and partly for the deceased, so it's heavily emotionally charged, cathartic applause, and the younger generation love it as they feel a bit uncomfortable with the church's solemnity and long for a lightening of the tone and a bit of participation. At the end of George Alagaya's memorial service at St Martin in the Fields in July, the order of service specifically invited everyone to clap, a final round of applause for George, exactly one minute, cheering aloud. The applause raised the roof, according to the BBC's account, and went on for far longer than a minute. For the older generation, who relished the solemnity of silence and who were brought up never to clap in church, it was simply not done along with eating an ice cream while walking. This can be a tricky situation. They have no desire whatsoever to join in with the clapping during what is an act of worship, not an entertainment. But to sit there with hands on lap feels churlish. 
So they go for a variety of options, varying from total rigidity to a short bout of half-hearted, noiseless clapping, while all around them are bashing their palms together, not sure when to stop because no one is going to be returning to the platform for an encore. We can trace the prevalence of this phenomenon via weddings and baptisms. It started at the moment when, in about 1982, the first vicar decided to say, at the heart of a wedding ceremony, you may now kiss the bride, and then straight afterwards, and let's all give them a round of applause. To which some of us thought, first, can't they wait, and then cringe, and then it's desecrating the sacrament twice. Then it became common for practice for vicars to instruct parents to parade their newly baptised baby round the church so everyone could see it close up and clap. And then, if you watch the footage of Princess Diana's funeral on the 6th of September 1997, you see the exact moment when applause at funerals came in from the cold. At the end of Charles Spencer's defiant address, spontaneous applause erupted among the crowds on the street outside who'd seen it on screens. It was angrily agreeing that needed to be said kind of applause of the kind you hear on Question Time. And a few seconds later, the applause sped from the streets to the pews of the Abbey. And there they all were, the aristocrats, the politicians, the great and the good, suddenly clapping their heads off at a funeral. It's not a welcome innovation, according to two clergymen I spoke to, who care about the vital difference between worship and entertainment. Addresses and eulogies, said Bishop Humphrey Southern, principal of Cudston Theological College, are aspects of the people's offering to God, and so the only one appropriate to offer applause is surely the Almighty, I suggest. Although there is a sense of dramatic and performative in worship, it is not either a play or a concert. Funeral applause, said Canon Bruce Ruddock, a chaplain to the King, is an example of the way in which funerals have become more secular and of how mourners find it impossible to accept grief without something chummy attached to it. The church is compromising itself by soft-soaping everything in this way. And it is all too often the clergy themselves who are rather embarrassed by any kind of liturgical silence and can't resist puncturing it by inviting a nice, relaxing round of applause. Is there any theological difference between a funeral and memorial service, and might clapping be more acceptable at the latter? A funeral is where you commend and commit someone to God, said Ruddock. At a memorial service, you're celebrating the life of the person. It's purely and simply a thanksgiving. I can understand why people might like to clap, but I don't like it. It intrudes on the solemnity and the general flow of the service. Last year, I went to a performance of Bach's St Matthew Passion, at which it was stipulated that there must be no applause at the end. It was incredibly powerful and moving. You left without the bubble being burst. Applause used to make an impact because it was refreshingly unexpected. Now, more and more, it's silence that speaks loudest. That was Yesenda Maxstone Graham. Now, Richard Bratby. Next month, in London, they're celebrating a composer who you've probably never heard of, but whose work you're sure to have heard. If you've watched much British TV or cinema in the past half century, you'll already know his music, better than you think. Quick test of age. Do you remember the right one? The song that used to advertise Martini? Any time, any place, anywhere. In a haze of wah-wah pedal and 1970s hair. How about Dennis Potter's sci-fi swan song, Cold Lazarus? Or more recently, the BAFTA-winning Edith Piaf biopic, La Vie en Rose. Still no? And picture David Suchet as ITV's Poirot. Come on, surely you can already hear that smoky sax curling across for titles. Anyway... The man who composed all those scores also wrote concertos for violin, cello, oboe and guitar, one of the most original cycles of British symphonies since Malcolm Arnold. Christopher Gunning died last March, aged 78, and it's possible that we're only starting to appreciate what we've lost. Born in Cheltenham, but raised in Metroland, Gunning trained with the symphonist Edmund Rubra and the musical polymath Richard Roddy Bennett, 
Still, probably the only pupil of Pierre Boulez to have had a regular jazz piano gig at New York's Algonquin Hotel. A lucrative career in adverts and commercial ranging, he worked with Shirley Bassey and Cilla Black, led him to TV and the movies. And then, three years shy of his 60th birthday, he wrote his first symphony and kept writing them, 13 in total, all created since the millennium by a composer who might reasonably have been expected to retire to his home in Croxley Green to walk his dog Sasha and tend his garden. That's true, says Tommy Pearson, the producer of a tribute concert later this month, and a close friend of Gunning's. He was very aware of that. I don't know whether writing concert music in later life was part of his game plan, or it just sort of happened. But he set about it with integrity, because for the first time in his career, he was writing what he wanted to write. Symphonies were slightly out of step with the trends, but what else can you do as an artist? You do what's true. Some of Gunning's commercial work was already conceived on a larger scale. The Long March, his score for the 1988 Winlot dog food campaign, could be the skirts of some rediscovered Hulst folk song suite. Gunning later released it as a charity single, performed by the Barking Light Orchestra. Like many old pros, he had a mischievous sense of humour. He made friends, too. The upcoming concert at Cadogan Hall will star the guitarist John Williams and the singer-songwriter Colin Blundstone, for whom Gunning made a series of innovative string arrangements. We're doing two of them, with Colin singing, says Pearson, and in one of them, the song effectively stops in the middle. Chris just goes off on his own direction and writes a string quartet. He was into Bartok at the time. There'll also be music from two of Gunning's ad campaigns, Martini, of course, and the Bond-like score he composed for Black Magic Chocolates. Who knows the secret of the Black Magic box? The saxophone virtuoso John Hall will perform Poirot Variations, a concert piece that Gunning crafted from his best-known TV theme. For Pearson, the aim is to show the composer in the round. I want the concert to be representative of every part of his career, he says. You mustn't ignore his TV themes, because they're beautifully written and very, very catchy. Only a good composer could come up with melodies like those. But if you sit and read through his commercial scores, you'll see traditional skills in every single bar. It doesn't matter whether he's writing a 30-second commercial or a 40-minute symphony. Every bar is infused with class, because he knew what he was doing. I've been trying to think of another figure who is just as successful at serious art and at advertising. The only one that comes to mind is Salman Rushdie. That's the fascinating quality about Gunning's music. Whether dog food advert or symphonic finale, it's audibly cut from the same cloth. Listen to concert works by John Williams, the Hollywood one, or Danny Elfman, and it's hard not to feel that you're getting the second pressing, that are saving the best ideas for their day job. Gunning's symphonies are a different matter entirely neither recycled film music nor offcuts from the workbench. The wholly original creations, intensely personal in emotion, are shaped with the long-form mastery you'd expect from pupil of Rubra, himself a disciple of Sibelius and a pupil of Holst. They're represented in the concert by his 10th symphony of 2016, conducted by Kenneth Woods, who's recorded several of Gunning's symphonies. Chris was pretty unapologetic about his musical language being cinematic, says Woods. If you know his film music or his commercial music, you can hear the same ear for melody and harmony as in the symphonies, unabashedly so. But what Chris did, which I really admired, is that he thought long and hard and deeply about what it means to write a symphony or a concerto within that language. You can see him in each of his symphonies looking at how to integrate cyclical form, developmental processes and some quite sophisticated harmonic stuff, including 12-tone melodies. I think for him the 10th symphony was the one that he felt happiest with. There's something defiantly unfashionable about Gunning's late career embrace of the symphony, a form that's been pronounced dead almost as often as classical music itself. 
already pigeonholed by a classical commentary act that habitually discounts commercial composers as a lesser species. Gunning had no inhibitions to lose, and he wrote the music that he needed to write. In doing so, Woods believes that he filled a gap. It's a quirk of our classical world, I suppose, that the symphony is looked at with an air of suspicion. You can't imagine literary critics dismissing the novel, or theatrical people saying that evening-long plays are a thing of the past. Chris didn't want people to regard his concert works as programmatic, but he spoke a lot about the symphony as a narrative form, as it was about taking your listener on a journey. I want our audiences to experience that sense of occasion and impact. Gunning's career might turn out to have spanned the last moment that a composer could successfully bridge the great cultural divide. With natural versatility that had Purcell producing both sacred anthems and sing-along show tunes, or Vaughan Williams, another late-flowering symphonist, collaborating with Powell and Pressburger, has little place in an increasingly specialised commercial world. Chris never saw doing a commercial as being below doing a symphony. It was all just another part of a composer's job, says Pearson. A lot of younger composers today are not composer-composers. They're media composers. They work in a particular way, using lots of technology. That technology didn't exist when Chris was coming up, so he had to lie entirely on traditional methods. His music needs to be heard. And now it will be. The fact that music as familiar and beloved as Gunnings remains largely anonymous suggests that we still have much to discover and enjoy. His 13th and final symphony hasn't even been recorded yet. Serious times call for serious art, and with it, perhaps, a belated appreciation of the craftsmanship, integrity and, yes, inspiration that goes into anything that communicates widely and well whether it's as ambitious as a symphony or as fleeting as a chocolate advert. It's too late to give Gunning the recognition he hoped for during his life, but this month's concert still feels more like a beginning than an end. That was Richard Bratby. Finally, Toby Young. I was shocked to read about the behaviour of Joe Biden's dog, Commander. According to a CNN report based on freedom of information requests, he bit US Secret Service agents on 24 separate occasions between October 2022 and July 2023. There were also numerous other incidents involving the White House staff. These were not playful nips either. The agents reported being bitten on the wrist, forearm, elbow, waist, chest, thigh and shoulder, with at least two bites requiring stitches. On one occasion, an agent was bitten so badly that tours of the White House had to be suspended for 20 minutes while a janitor mopped up the blood. During his convalescence, the victim was given a care package by his colleagues that included painkillers, antibiotic ointment, pepper spray, a muzzle and dog biscuits, quote, for safety purposes, unquote. A source close to the Bidens told CNN that the family feels awful and heartbroken about Commander's behaviour, although you have to question how sincere they are, given that the German shepherd was allowed to prowl the corridors of the West Wing, unmuzzled, biting a member of the President's Secret Service detail every fortnight for the best part of a year. Had Commander been a civilian dog, one of his victims would have sued the Bidens by now, and a judge probably would have ordered him to be put down. But taking the President to court would be frowned upon in the Secret Service, so Commander continues to roam free, although, mercifully, he's no longer in the White House. I can't help contrasting the fate of the Biden's dog with Leo, the Hungarian Vizsla the young family used to own. On returning from a walk in the park one day, Caroline let him out of the boot and he leapt over the wall separating our front garden from our neighbours and bit an Ocado delivery man. This didn't come close to Commander's level of aggression. 
Admittedly, the man fell to the ground, clutching his leg, and started screaming for an ambulance. But that was because he sensed an opportunity to cash in. When the paramedics arrived, they took one look at his injury and burst out laughing. The police, who also turned up, were equally unimpressed. A sympathetic officer told Caroline the man was clearly a chancer and she had nothing to worry about. She thought that was the end of it, but the same officer returned 15 minutes later and said he'd spoken to his sergeant and been told that any dog involved in a biting incident had to be taken into custody for observation. He seemed apologetic about it. Sorry, love, but I've got no choice. And gave her the impression she'd be reunited with Leo in a couple of hours. In fact, it was four months before we saw him again. And in the interim, Caroline was cautioned under the Dangerous Dogs Act. That meant we couldn't keep him, because if he bit someone else, she would be guilty of a second offence and might receive a prison sentence. So we ended up having to rehouse him. When we got over the shock of this, we decided to buy another dog, only this time we opted for a Cavapoo Shon. Mally is about a tenth of the size of Leo and much lower maintenance, but we're now faced with the opposite problem, namely how to stop her being bitten. Twice now, I've had to whisk Mally up into my arms to protect her from a much bigger dog. She was so traumatised by these incidents that she starts barking whenever she sees a Labrador or an Alsatian, which of course doesn't help because it immediately attracts their attention. I daren't let her off the lead in any of the nearby parks in case an XL bully spots her and thinks, Scooby Snook! The Bidens show no signs of wanting to trade in Commander for a more manageable breed. Indeed, their previous dog, also a German Shepherd, had to be returned to their home in Delaware after a National Park Service worker was bitten on the White House lawn. You turn a corner and there's two people you don't know at all, and Major moves in to protect, Biden told an ABC interviewer, as though biting people was perfectly normal for a dog. Asked about the Biden's predilection for out-of-control canines, a White House spokesman said... The President and First Lady care deeply about the safety of those who work at the White House and those who protect them every day. They remain grateful for the support of the U.S. Secret Service and all involved as they continue to work through solutions. I can think of a solution. Get a Cavapouchon. Though probably not a good idea to let it off the lead if Commander is anywhere in the vicinity. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed these articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read them and many more in full. I'm Patrick Gibbons, and I hope you join us again next week. Yeah.